0: Thanks for tuning into this podcast from KYMN Radio. You can find more of them like it on our website, kymnradio.net, or wherever you get your podcast. Simply search the KYMN Radio podcast. Real Radio. True Variety. 95.1. The One. National Security This Week is a regular feature heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. here on KYMN Radio. Today, your host, John Olson, is talking with Mark Canning, a retired Foreign Service officer with the State Department. We tap into his deep experience with the Korean Peninsula and discuss both North and South Korea. Due to some technical issues, the first few minutes of the broadcast was not recorded. We'll pick things up with our discussion on North Korea.
1: So we know there are all kinds of trade embargoes and sanctions on, on North Korea. Uh, how does the North Korean economy function? Uh, you know, what, do they have any major domestic products or export products? Uh, how reliant are they on Chinese aid? Uh,
2: very heavily. Okay. So most of the estimates are somewhere between eighty-five and ninety-five percent of trade goes through the land border with China. Uh, there's almost no uh, trade with uh, with South Korea. A little bit of trade. They do share a land border with Russia as well, uh, but most of it's on China. Uh, There are a lot of sanctions right now, Uh, two types of sanctions. One are the U.N. sanctions. The U.N. sanctions are primarily aimed at uh, denuclearization and their missile program, and primarily economic. Um, Those can be lifted fairly easily or adjusted fairly easily with the approval of five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council. The other type of sanctions are the ones that were passed by the U.S. Congress, Uh, and those cover other uh, uh, topics such as human rights and and things like that. Those are going to be much harder to change because uh, it's very difficult right now to get anything through (laughs) the U.S. Congress. (laughs) Um, But the the big thing right now is the pandemic, that uh, North Korea basically closed its borders and shut off both the passage of people and goods from China. And so there's some smuggling going on, But the economy has taken a real hit, and uh, we're seeing more and more reports of uh, malnutrition. And um, for the people who think we might be able to take advantage of North Korea's vulnerability at a time of weakness, they're excited about this because they say maybe North Korea needs economic assistance. They need the sanctions lifted. They need help with their economy. Um, We might be able to take advantage of this situation and get them to come to negotiate a denuclearization. I don't believe that, but yeah. that is one uh, point of view. Um, what North Korea did to itself by shutting the borders is much stricter and much more consequential than anything we've done with sanctions.
1: Yeah. I, I did see uh, a news report uh, maybe two weeks ago where uh, Kim Jong-un actually came out and publicly apologized to the nation for the impacts of COVID-19.
2: Yes. And in that speech, he used the expression, the arduous march, which refers to a time in 94, 95, when there was uh, great starvation. Some of the estimates range from a couple of hundred thousand to a couple of million. I think probably six or 700,000 people literally starved to death. When just across the border in China, they're feeding rice bowls to their dogs and that kind of thing. Um yeah, I was um, I was kind of uh, alarmed to see that come up again. That he was telling them, "Prepare for a second arduous march. Get ready. Tighten your belts." That kind of thing. Um, it is also unusual to see the head of North Korea acknowledge failure and, right. and, and ask him and apologize. Yeah. That was something that neither his father nor his grandfather did very much.
1: Yeah, that that's why that that particular statement caught my attention as well. We should probably uh, discuss a little bit about North Korea's uh, diplomatic engagement with the world. Uh, how much do they engage with other nations? I, I, what mechanisms exist for them to quietly discuss diplomacy with, uh, you know, say, the United States uh, when we don't have a, a direct diplomatic relationship with uh, what's commonly called the hermit kingdom?
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Um, I would have to split my answer into two parts, the COVID and the non-COVID. Because of COVID right now. Uh, All of the foreign diplomats have left and there basically isn't any um, exchanges taking place in Pyongyang. There are still North Korean diplomats in New York. We call that the New York Channel. So that's a way for us to to reach them. And then sometimes uh, in Scandinavia or Geneva in Switzerland, we can go through third countries. Um, But right now, we have no um, representation in Pyongyang. Uh, what usually happens, the biggest mission right there is the German mission, and I think that's a legacy of East Germany's mission there. Okay. And inside the building that houses um, the German embassy, there are the UK has an office, uh, mm. the Swedes have an office, and the Swedes right now represent us. Uh, okay. Next to the Swedish ambassador's office, there is an empty office that at one time had been. Uh, Targeted, it was going to be become a U.S. interest office so that we might oh. put somebody there, in effect, second somebody to the Swedish mission. Uh, that hasn't happened. Uh, if you look at the Singapore declaration, the, the agreement that was signed in uh, ni- uh, 2018 between Kim Jong-un and Trump, uh, the first of the four goals of that said that uh, relations would be upgraded. So there, there was some hope uh, then we might do something like that, but uh, it's not on the cards right now yeah. so we yeah we don't have a lot of well, many good ways of keeping in touch with them right now yeah. i I, w- I
1: was aware that uh, that we relied pretty heavily on on Sweden to help us with that engagement. I didn't know about the other the other yeah. uh, elements in the, in the German embassy that's that's fascinating stuff and <laughs> a
2: few years ago South Korea built a liaison office which is kind of the precursor to an embassy in Kaesong, which okay. is the old Chosun dynasty capital just north of the DMZ, at the western end of the DMZ. Um, That's
1: like an industrial sector in there, isn't well, it? Well, it was an
2: industrial park, uh, an export processing park that had been set up by the south and north. Uh, at one time, there were as many as maybe 125 South Korean companies and over 50,000 North Korean workers. Mm. Uh, that was up to about 2013, but it was shut down in 2016 after a, a nuclear test. Mm. Um But inside Kaesong, in fact, next to the building where the headquarters were, the South Koreans built uh, this glitzy steel and glass liaison office. Um, But I think, as you know, South Koreans, particularly defectors, North Korean defectors in South Korea, have been sending leaflets and thumb drives back into North Korea using um, helium balloons. (laughs) And then North complained and complained and complained. And in response to those... The North Koreans blew up that liaison office. Oh. So okay. there is, there, there, for a while there, there was a lot of contact between the South and the North, but right now they don't even have that. All right.
1: Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're speaking with Mark Canning, a retired Foreign Service officer with extensive diplomatic experience on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, okay, so let's turn our discussion to uh, to the security discussion, since so much of what happens vis-a-vis the U.S. and, and North Korea uh, relates to the perceived threat from North Korea. Uh, what do you think that the American people should know about the, about North Korea as a potential security threat to our nation? We can get into some of the specifics, but, uh, but to our nation and frankly to South Korea as well.
2: Well, North Korea has nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've done six tests. Their first test was in October of 2006, the last one in September of 2017. Uh, Like India, India did six nuclear tests and then stopped because they said, we've demonstrated the ability, we don't need to test anymore. And after roughly a decade, they were welcomed back into the nuclear club. Um, Pakistan has done six tests, and they stopped testing because they didn't need to do anymore. So uh, the assumption that I and some other North Korean watchers make is that, uh, and in fact, uh, Kim Jong-un said this in a New Year's uh, statement a few years ago, that they finished their testing program. They don't need to test anymore. So um, they have, everybody agrees, they have the ability to build nuclear weapons. Uh, They also have the ability to deliver those nuclear weapons with missiles uh, to all 50 American states. Um, There's some concern about whether maybe they don't have miniaturized it, they haven't tested the weapon to see whether it would withstand the rigors of reentry into the atmosphere and so forth. But I think we should operate on the assumption that North Korea has nuclear weapons and missiles and can use them at any time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have some doubts about Why they would do that, I have difficulty (laughs) envisioning a scenario in which it makes sense for North Korea to do that. I don't see them as an existential threat, Um, but we have to take it like that. Um, We have 28,500 troops in South Korea, um, and right now those troops are under the control of an American general. There's something called opcon or operational control during... Peacetime, the North Koreans are, I mean, the South Koreans are in charge of the combined commands down there. Mm -hmm. There's the U.S. Forces Command, that's the 28,500 American troops. There's the U.N. Command, that has an American general in charge. And then there's the Combined Forces Command. In peacetime, that's run by a a, a South Korean general. But in wartime, it would switch to an American general, which is a little bit like saying, that you can drive the car as long as you're in the garage, but as soon as we head out on, on the road, I'm taking the <laughs> wheel. Uh, that's kind of a sensitive issue. But um, I, I think the South Koreans, you know, when the Korean War started, the South Koreans didn't have, didn't have any tanks. They didn't have any planes. They didn't have any ships. They had nothing. And North Korea had a military advantage. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case now. I think South Korea has, except perhaps in the um, category of nuclear weapons south korea i think is, is they're more than capable of, of defending themselves so yeah
1: so let's talk a little bit more about that uh that ballistic missile program uh they they have developed a, a wide range of missiles some are short range some are medium range and, and now we know that they've developed some some icbms Inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles right uh, you mentioned that uh they have done the nuclear testing. There's a question, have they miniaturized it enough to put on an ICBM warhead? Uh, they have not demonstrated uh, full launch to uh, to target and detonation of a nuclear warhead. So there's some question, do they have that capability yet without having actually tested it? Uh, I think your assessment of we should assume they can do it is a, probably a smart one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a smart move. Where North Korea is located, uh, for them to launch any kind of a ballistic missile attack on... Uh, on the 48 states in the continental U.S., um, not including Alaska, of course, uh, they would have to actually fly over Alaska, which is one of the reasons why Fort Greeley is so strategically located there with the ground-based uh, missile defense system. Um, and you mentioned that uh, you don't think that they are an existential threat. I actually would agree with that. Uh, from everything I've heard, uh, Kim Jong-un is, is not an irrational actor. And I think he knows uh, that if he were to launch even one missile at the United States, uh, even without a nuclear warhead on it, he would basically be uh, submitting his letter of resignation to be in charge of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree with that uh, assessment?
2: Yes, I do. I think our retribution would be swift and severe, and, and that's enough of a deterrent, in my opinion. Um, you know, they, they constantly engage in provocations. Mm-hmm. They, they did sink the Chonan, a South Korean ship. That's right. Occasionally there's um, shelling from a North Korean island to, to a South Korean island on the, on the west side. Um, but I don't see any serious you know uh, it just doesn't make sense yeah you know?
1: there's a lot of uh, what I've seen you know over the course of my my intelligence career in the Navy and whatnot was uh, conflict between North and South Korea. They want to keep it isolated between those two governments, those two you know quote unquote nations. Uh, and they look at the uh, the US as more of a they, an, an interference in their ability to deal with the South. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if that's your experience.
2: Yeah, it, it, we've had some discussions with the Chinese about what would happen if North Korea did something. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had these discussions in, in many years, but um, the last that I read on this, the last that I heard on this, was that China basically implied if North Korea starts something, North Korea is on its own. So China and North Korea, they each only have one treaty ally, Mm -hmm. uh, an agreement under which if if somebody attacks you, I will come to your defense. If somebody attacks me, you come to my defense. Um, So they are treaty allies with each other. But China has told us back channel that if North Korea starts something, it's on its own. But Mm -hmm. if the U.S. were to attack and start something, then China would come to North Korea's rescue. Uh, it, It just, I can't, there's so little to gain Right. From either side, starting a serious military conflict. Yeah.
1: So more broadly, uh, and, and so you li- you've been there, you spent six years there. I think I have a total of about four months on the ground there, uh-huh. mostly in military exercises and whatnot. Uh, North Korea, invading South Korea. Uh, is, is that a serious possibility? I mean, from my experience, uh, the temporary duty assignments that I spent in South Korea, at, at, even by the late 1990s, it felt to me... When you looked at the capabilities of the South Korean military armed with, you know, our weaponry uh, and the training that they did uh, actively with us, felt more like U.S. forces were in South Korea, more to prevent them to, from going north than it was from uh, from us to deter any real <laughs> threat from the North Korean invasion of the South. Uh, what do you think?
2: Um, perhaps what's more important is what do the people in South Korea think? And the people that I talk to, you know, they're worried about— um, housing prices sure. and their kids' education. And we had we were told—I uh, lived on an army base in Yongsan, in the center of Seoul. We were told to keep a bag near the door with passports and money and bottled water and so forth, and that if you had to flee, um, the first thing you should do is run to the nearest subway station. There was one just off base one of the deepest, you know, because then you could withstand the first artillery onslaught. Right. And when that ended, then make your way south as quickly as possible. Um, Every once in a while there would be something like Buddha's birthday where you hadn't been anticipating that at 11 o'clock at night the sky would suddenly erupt with, you know, thunderous (laughs) noise and explosions (laughs) and people would all kind of open their door and say, is this it? Uh, um, But for the most part, the, the South Koreans that I dealt with, they don't see that as a realistic possibility at all Mm -hmm. and maybe you just turn a blind eye to it because you have to live on but the people i knew they were worried south korean housing prices have gone up 50 percent over the last five years apartments in seoul are just absurdly expensive i had colleagues making thirty thousand dollars a year who were you know looking at apartments that cost seven hundred and fifty thousand to a million (laughs) dollars um so they have other concerns um The cost of raising a child in South Korea right now is so expensive that nobody's having any babies. Mm. The um, fertility rate in South Korea is lower than anywhere else in the world. I have some doubts about that because I I suspect that probably the Vatican might be just slightly lower than South Korea. (laughs) But it's .8 uh, children per female in South Korea right now. So you need to have 2.1 kids just to maintain the population. Right. So every day you'd see these stories in the newspaper about the last kid living on this island left for college in Seoul, and so the school's going to close. Or the last sixth grader in this town uh, went to high school, and so the school's going to close. There really, really weren't many kids, and they kind of extrapolate. If you... Say that you're going to. Your population is going to go down by this rate every year. That in in 30 years, or 40 years, or 50 years, there won't be anybody left. Mm-hmm. They won't have any soldiers for the. the Uh, mandatory military service, and you won't have any laborers to earn taxes to cover the increasingly aging society and that kind of thing. For most people, that's a much, much more pressing problem than North Korea.
1: Yeah, demographics, the power of demographics and studying demographics, it's it's a fascinating subject uh, for our listening audience in case they want to do a little more reading on that. Uh, You mentioned uh, that first bombardment of Seoul. Uh, as a retired military guy, I can tell you that that was uh, sort of the big the big question right out of the gate is if something were to start. Uh, there was an estimate that uh, I think almost seventy five eighty percent of Seoul, is if within range of uh, North Korean artillery, uh, not to mention their short-range ballistic missiles, right. and that the, the initial bombardment of both Seoul and then their military bases that we share with uh, with South Korea would be pretty significant. Right. Is that kind of what you heard in discussing things yes. with South Korea? I mean they
2: have more than 10,000 artillery pieces uh, in, in mountains just north of the DMZ that can reach Seoul. And so, yeah, they could rain incredible destruction down. Now, I don't think they can sustain a long-term conventional war against right. the South, but they could do a lot of damage up front. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that was also, also the question, and, and we, th- we will be talking in the future about, uh, you know, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics, and one uh-huh. of the biggest challenges North Korea would have in an invasion of the South is that logistics piece, sustaining any kind of an offensive. But let's move on. Uh, if you were on the Biden national security team, uh, and I asked you this before with regards to how you would uh, advise them engaging uh, with Xi Jinping and in, in Beijing. How would you approach uh, North Korea uh, and security discussions? And, and maybe specifically, we should talk a little bit about the, the term denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula.
2: Yes, I follow a lot of North Korean watchers, um, Victor Cha at CSIS, Suzanne DiMaggio at uh, Carnegie, Joel Witt at Stimson. These are people who negotiated, um, denuclearization with the North Koreans over the past 20 years, knowledgeable, experienced people. None of them are saying we should abandon the goal of denuclearization. Um, my own views are somewhat out of the mainstream. I think that North Korea is going to keep its nuclear weapons until they're no longer of any value to them. And, and so that's going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Um, I'd be. I, I think more and more I'm seeing conversations that sound like arms control, okay. so uh, not denuclearization, but let's work with them to limit the amount of uranium they're enriching, or stop the production of plutonium from spent fuel rods, uh, make sure that there isn't non-proliferation. They're not making a weapon and selling it to Syria or something like that. Right. The implication is then that, but you can keep what you've got now, North Korea, and so uh, I don't think anybody wants to say that out loud. Mm-hmm but that may be the best deal that we can get right now. A lot of people are saying we can use the, uh, the agreement that was signed in Singapore as a basic framework, but... The only thing it said on denuclearization was that both parties agreed to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula, and there isn't even agreement on what that means. Right. I mean, when right. I was a, a GI in uh, South Korea in 79-80, we had nuclear missiles right. in the South, and we got rid of those through the Internet Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement. That was between uh, Gorbachev and Bush. It had nothing to do with South or North Korea. Right. It limited the number of nuclear weapons you can deploy overseas. Um, So what does it mean for us to denuclearize? I think North Korea sees that as kind of getting rid of the U.S. military, the nuclear umbrella, the bombers on Guam, Mm -hmm. the nuclear-armed submarine that's sailing off North Korea's east coast, but also even the American troops, that that we would just go away. And and I don't think any American uh, politician is ready to go there. So I'm not optimistic that... uh, there'll be any progress made if we make denuclearization essential to the agreement.
1: Yeah, it's been my understanding, uh, my impression anyway as I've watched this unfold is that uh, when when the North Koreans, well, when we refer to denuclearization of the Korean peninsula, we specifically mean North Korean you nuclear give up weapons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when the North Koreans refer to it, they talk about the US getting rid of the nuclear umbrella over South Korea like you were just outlining and then that's uh, I mean when you can't even agree on what that definition is, it's very hard to have meaningful right. dialogue about what the outcome is going to be.
2: It probably is significant that Kim Jong-un has repudiated yet yet and so there is something maybe that you can build on but I think the best we can hope for at least in the short term is a kind of arms control agreement that tacitly acknowledges they have nuclear weapons and and we're not going to make them give them up right now.
1: I know the Clinton administration uh, uh, back in the early 90s uh, had been talking with the North Koreans about uh, giving them the ability to create uh, electricity through nuclear power without having the ability to uh, enrich uranium in that process uh, is that something you could see happening uh, as part of an agreement?
2: Well, we tried under the agreed framework that was signed in 94 um, to build a light water reactor because light water reactors, unlike the graphite reactor they have now, you can't use the uh, spent fuel rods to produce plutonium. Um, we put a, about a billion and a half dollars into that light water reactor and then had to walk away when the deal broke down. Um, so you'd have to go back and start all over again. Um You know, possibly that could be done, but it's pretty speculative, (laughs) pretty uh, ambitious and aspirational right now, I would say. Yeah. Well,
1: we're coming in uh, towards the end of our show time here. Uh, I'll I'll tell you what. I'll give you the final word. Uh, What else should Americans know about the Korean Peninsula? I mean, you've spent a good bit of time there. You learned the language. Uh, you got to know the people. What is it that Americans simply cannot know about the character of the Korean people, their determination, and what they want for the peninsula? And I know you'd be speaking mostly for the South Koreans.
2: Yeah, although I will um, expand it to the north based on my personal interactions with the defectors that I know. Okay. Uh, I think life uh, on the Korean peninsula is more competitive than it is anywhere else that I've ever been. I mean, I enjoyed myself in Cape Town, um, but, you know, people don't um, live to work in Africa. Yeah. And, and, yeah, it's just so competitive. You can't imagine, I don't know, we got a minute? Can I explain the the educational system, for (laughs) example? If you're a child in South Korea right now, you go to school until middle of the afternoon, and then you go to um, night school until after midnight. (laughs) and you're taking music lessons and extra English lessons but you're also studying the curriculum for the following year so if you're a sixth grader you go to night school to study the curriculum for seventh grade and the reason (laughs) you do that is because that will give you a slight edge over your classmates on any exams and so forth that'll help you get into a good high school help you get into a good college help you to get a job with Samsung and get a better wife and it is so competitive uh, the former mayor of Seoul tried to shut these cram schools down at midnight, and the parents complained because they said if the kids in the other cities can study until 1 or 2, and my kid has to stop studying at midnight, he will lose that competitive edge. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's just such a competitive. I've, I've never seen it. Even if you look at things like plastic surgery, you know, they lead the world in plastic surgery. You have to make yourself better. You have to be better than the next person because that's how you're going to get ahead. And that drive, I think, has helped them. I, I mentioned the miracle on the Han. Helped them go from being one of the poorest countries in the world to one of the most advanced countries in the world. And I believe that if the North Koreans were given the opportunity, better management, you know, I think that they could also prosper and become a, a much, well, a much more modern country. Um, I don't, I'm not looking for political liberalization, but it could be at least a less loathsome and vile place to live. <laughs> you know, people could have decent lives, and I think the world would be a better place. I think the threat would go down, uh, and, and that might be the best we can do. I think we've been kind of fixated on denuclearization, and I'm, as I said, I'm just not optimistic that's going to go anywhere soon. And so maybe doing a little bit to try to improve the lives of the North Koreans might be the best that we can hope for in the short term.
1: All right. Uh, Mark Canning, it, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, back with us here on uh, National Security this week. Thanks for uh, driving down from uh, Richfield and joining us. My pleasure. Uh, that does it for this week's edition of National Security this week. I'm your host, John Olson. We're broadcasting from KYMN Radio Northfield on AM 1080 and FM 95.1. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'll be joined next week by Carleton College Professor Toon Mint to discuss the situation in Myanmar. Uh, Make sure you can join us. It'll be a fascinating discussion. If you have any ideas about topics you'd like us to tackle, please feel free to contact KYMN Radio. I'll do my best to find a guest to address your topic. Have a fantastic Wednesday, everyone, and a great finish to your week.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Keep up with local news and events at KYMNradio.net. Terry Knight, host a daily newscast Monday through Friday, as well as updates and other community news. And it's free. Stop by KYMNradio.net frequently. Look for updates on our Facebook page, too, KYMNradio.net. Still a friend you can count on.